begin by talking about a subject that I know is near and dear to everybody's hearts, the weekend box office. Yes. <laughs> this will give us a good excuse to talk about the news. Remember how we, were, we decided we were going to start every episode with the news? Guess we didn't do that for very long, did we? <laughs> no, because there isn't enough movie news in the world. Obviously, there's more than enough regular news, but people don't mm-hmm. want to be reminded of of that, much yep. less from two squeaky-voiced idiot nerds <laughs> like us. So <laughs> Our voices aren't squeaky. Everything else is completely true. Oh, fair but. Enough. <laughs> but I wanted to look at this weekend in particular because Sonic the Hedgehog, a surprise hit at this point. They mm. made $50 million on its opening weekend, which isn't exactly expected over Valentine's Day weekend. Mm-hmm. Some people thought, like, oh, people are going to be going out to the theater, they're going to be going out on Friday night, but not necessarily to see the Sonic and Hedgehog movie starring Jim Carrey. <laughs> So, but that's an unexpected hit. Um, the converse to that was Downhill, mm-hmm. a remake of Force Majeure starring Will Ferrell and Julie, Julie Louise Dreyfus. Um, I won't say tanked, but they it, it was like an orphan left over from the Disney's purchase of Fox, so they didn't exactly promote it that well. It They released a trailer only like a month ago and yeah. did like a half-hearted premiere at Sundance. Mm-hmm. Uh, it finished a tenth with only $4 million, so th- not exactly a great... I'm not exactly a cudgel that Julie Julie Louise Dreyfus is going to bring to her next meeting. I mean, what were they? What were they expecting? A box office draw. Like, oh, we remade this Swedish film, which is known for its dry comedy, and we made it goofier. I guess. Um, I guess the writing team of Fat Maxon. I always want to call him Fat (laughs) Maxon. Nat Faxon. Nat Faxon and Jim Rash. But I mean, like, they should have positioned it as more of like in December, not January. When you're or February. I guess it's February now. Oh gosh, I've lost complete track of time. But Greg, you're also missing the other big important. Uh, talking point around uh, the box office is the underperformance of one certain Birds of Prey. Or at least that's what yeah, it used is... to be called. <laughs> no, it's, I think yeah. they renamed it, so it actually fits on a marquee. <laughs> yeah, th- well, this is the other baffling thing. Is Well, I can see why they retired... Well, A, that movie made $33 million in its opening weekend, which, I don't know about you, $33 million is a lot of money <laughs> to <laughs> stupid idiots like you and me. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> but for some reason... They were expecting, four years later, like, Suicide Squad numbers. Mm. And this is the thing I can't, like, get over. It's, like, it's a completely different time. <laughs> it's a completely different season and a completely different set of stars. Like, it's not going to be the, exactly the same. Well, they, so I don't know what the hell they were expecting. Were they, well, they also, were expecting, like, Deadpool numbers. But Yeah, that's knows. what was my question. Like, where are they expecting Deadpool numbers again? It's like an R-rated comedy in February. No one thought it would work, but it uh, did. Superheroes, yeah. Yeah, that too. <laughs> but... I, I think one thing, like, at least Deadpool had a clever campaign around it. I remember they were campaigning on Christmas Day the NBA games, which rate highly. So they mm-hmm. they had a much bigger and funnier and or at least clever reach in terms of their marketing, which Birds of Prey didn't have. Margot Robbie didn't do, go on any of the talk shows or anything mm-hmm. to let people know that this Birds of Prey. Also, I mean, you could leverage just about Deadpool. Nobody knows who the Birds of Prey are. <laughs> And it definitely doesn't help. I'm, I know, I'm sorry. I'm not Greg, a comic book person. How dare you I, just besmirch the good name of Black Canary, everyone's favorite female superhero. <laughs> I know, and they made her look so distinctive. She she got like a leather jacket on and a motorcycle helmet. Like, you know, I, <laughs> no, Greg, that's Huntress. Damn it. Jeez. Hunt- oh, sorry. Sorry. <laughs> it's fine. It's fine. I'll forgive you this yeah. time. In time. But, John, but here's the broader point that I want to make over all this. Mm-hmm. Obviously, nobody knows what's going to do well at the box office because the movie making is such a nebulous business. Mm-hmm. I mean, it all comes down to timing and what the tastes are, and yeah, there's no guarantees in the, in this business, John. However, I do want to point out something that every other country in the world does. Every other developed country in the world has this. <laughs> okay. They measure box office performance by the number of tickets actually sold. Hmm. Interesting. And for some reason, it's only it's only the U.S. box office that does it by this weird opening weekend metric mm. uh, that could be uh, twisted by or inflated by 3D tickets or, let's say, just the weekend ra- price being no matinees anymore. Now it's all like one flat rate for the entire weekend. Interesting. So 
Yes. And they measure it in in pounds, right? Pounds and and centimeters, right? Is that also the the rest of the world? Exactly. It's ridiculous. The United States is the only developed country in the world to not record their box office by the number of tickets sold. (laughs) This is what Bernie, this is why we need to put Bernie in office, folks. Exactly. (laughs) This is the big change we need. Yes, it's the, all right. It, there is socialism for this country, and it's for <laughs> the people behind Son- the Sonic the Hedgehog movie. <laughs> that was the problem with downhill. Not enough 3D screenings. Come on, I want to see that that avalanche coming at me. Exactly. Or Julie Louis Dreyfus and Will Ferrell bickering, like, <laughs> at, like looking right at me. <laughs> oh, hilarious. And I, I, I just hope that people got fired. That's the only thing I care about. <laughs> Who got fired? Who got promoted? Like, where's the drama? John, where's come that on. Juice? All right. I don't, no, John, come on. All right. Some of those people were really important cousins and nephews and <laughs> nieces. All right. They don't deserve this. This is true. This is also true. Oh, Hollywood is a fickle business. That's why, that's why, we, that's why we, we, we don't look forward. We look back on this podcast. Welcome to the Aspiring Stops podcast, where we revisit a classic film every week that we probably should have seen by now. Yeah, and also by now, you've forgotten that the Oscars happened. <laughs> um, I can't remember what one. Um, uh, Green Book won. It doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> but we're devoting this month to not just Oscar winners, but also musicals mm-hmm. uh, that did the Oscars. And we're going through the decades. Uh, we started in the 50s with An American in Paris, moving on to the 60s, The Sound of Music. And now we're experiencing for the first time uh, a winner of eight Academy Awards. Didn't quite win Best Picture. Uh, lost out to another smaller film uh, you may have heard of, but it doesn't matter now. Um, <laughs> but of course, we're talking about the Lisa Minnelli starring Bob Foss directed Cabaret. Welcome and bienvenue. Welcome, Classic, classic joke. Yeah. Loved it. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want to copy on cinema. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> that, that's every movie they introduce. Uh, Ca- Cabaret stars uh, Lisa Minnelli and uh, Michael Yorark. And... <laughs> We're not here to steal jokes about cabaret because mm-hmm. I speak French. <laughs> um, because I don't know if this movie's quite worth the five bags of popcorn moniker. Okay. Yeah. Just putting it right out there. Jeez. Like, immediately, oh. like, like firing out the gate, like, not even explaining what the movie is. You're just, like, immediately, like, eh, no, not about it. Well, people, yeah, people want our impressions first. That's obviously what they tune in for, right? Nah. <laughs> but okay, some context. Yes. So. This movie came out uh, after a glut of big, extravagant uh, musicals had somewhat bombed and fallen out of public favor. Mm-hmm. Um, now it's the early 70s, people want gritty uh, yeah. dramas centered for its adults. Easy Rider had already happened, so we're in, the, we're in the 70s heyday, baby. We're just loaded up with coke and everything. No more weed, folks. Now it's, time, now it's the era exactly. of coke. <laughs> People are getting dressed up and they're saying, I want to see five easy pieces with <laughs> Jack Nicholson. I want to see the French connection. And so they didn't really have the appetite for a big bombastic musical, but uh, director Bob Fosse kind of found one in this uh, stage show, Cabaret. Well, the other thing to consider is Bob Fosse was coming off a uh, other notorious box office flop, flop before this in 1969 with Sweet Charity, which is okay. where, which is where uh, the Big Spender song comes from. Hey, Big Spender! So that was the last movie he did before this one. Uh, looking to get a hit again, he decided to take on this project. So, took a lot of big risks with this one. Big swings. Yeah, so we should probably explain that all the performances happen in the context of the movie. They're not, like, fantastical. Yeah, they're diegetic musical performances. 
And so, and it centers around a amateur singer at this cabaret. I don't know if she's exactly the draw, but uh, it's Sally Bowles, played by Lisa. Uh, <laughs> say her name again. Sorry, <laughs> Liza Minnelli, mm-hmm. uh, based on a real person um, who's somewhat fictionalized in um, in stories by uh, an author named Christopher Isherwood. And uh, in the original st- or the original story or you know real life event that takes place, it's actually a. Um, English student who comes to uh, Germany and he befriends a British singer. Uh, in this one, it's reversed. Now it's a British student coming and befriends an American singer at a cabaret. <laughs> and uh, they kind of strike up a friendship at first and then it eventually becomes a relationship, but their relationship is very tenuous at best. Uh, Sally, well, Bowles is, is, Sally Bowles is quite the wild child. She can't be tied yeah, I, down, baby. Yeah, I think the idea is like a cross-cultural romance here. Mm-hmm. You have... The the uh, willful daughter of a diplomat. Apparently, the father is um, somewhat estranged, but also very important. Where she is, you know, living in a boarding house, um, performing at night, like not exactly, you know, high society. Mm-hmm. So, and and she's also got a, this joie de vivre. She's got a lot of energy, and she sleeps around and is a bit um, uh, promiscuous. Mm-hmm. Unlike in sh- in sharp contrast to this Cambridge student who comes in all stuffy, is like, oh no, I couldn't possibly. Oh, okay. <laughs> played by Michael York. <laughs> and uh, uh, his name's Brian Roberts, and so that's kind of the that's a, that's at least where the the heart of the story is in the, is in this romance. Mm-hmm. And I think it's also worth pointing out that this is an, a very I would say early depiction of a of queer identity. I would say he's not he's not completely gay, but he's he's at least bi, and uh, he confesses that it's like he's he's had he's tried to have sex with women and it just doesn't do anything for him. But uh, Eventually, he kind of ends up betting with uh, Sally Bowles, and he kind of like awakens something in him. But he still kind of has that attraction to men. It's it's very kind of fluid, which I thought was kind of interesting. And you know, they got away with what they could in 1972 standards. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to give the movie well, some credit for that. Yeah, let, let's first talk about that transgressive content, mm. um, because. In the midst of this romance taking place at this boarding house, and as we'll see later, like a, a baron's country estate, and in the context of a, a really uh, impoverished Weimar Germany, and the and you could see like little hints of the ascension of the Nazi Party here in 1930s Berlin. Mm-hmm. What did you think of the transgressive element? Obviously, we have a, a main character who, as you said, uh, has a fluid sexual orientation. Um, I believe the author was a little. Um, a, a little miffed because um, the author is, is gay himself and mm-hmm. wanted to kind of like put that in his protagonist here but the movie kind of makes it more uh, he, he thought it made it like more like happen, happenstance rather than like like a part of his identity and yeah, of, of course this cut this is cut together with the cabaret show which also has some transgressive elements in in terms of uh, performers it has drag, drag performers yeah mm-hmm. And I mean, yeah. the Master of Ceremonies is very clearly coded as gay, so yeah. he's got his, you know, like <laughs> well, French clown makeup and whatnot. <laughs> yeah. Well, I I only saw him. Well, I, okay, I guess two performances. He's actually in drag, but whatever. What I mean, what did you think of in terms of what they could do in 1972, and and this kind of becoming a box office hit, and also um, winning the the acclaim of the Academy. I mean, that is kind of the interesting thing. It's kind of like the whole idea of Sally is that she is supposed to be kind of a slut. She sleeps around, but we don't really yeah. see her engage in anything besides like her trying to win the affections of a certain baron. Other than that, you know, we don't really see too much going on. And I guess the other thing, too, is to consider is the fact that what is the text of the movie saying? The movie is saying she is wrong. She's a bad person. <laughs> so, because the whole main theme of the movie is that she's living this laissez-faire, uh, devil-may-care lifestyle. And what is the consequences of that? Uh, the Nazis rise up in Germany. It's like she needs to be more aware of her surroundings. I don't, I don't think it's, no, I don't think it's actually putting a point and saying that's a, that's a bad thing that she's mm. not, or that's a good thing that the Nazi party is rising to ascension. And no, 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 I'm not saying that's a, I'm not saying the movie's saying that's a, a bad, I just, I think what the movie is saying is it's putting a judgmental eye on the character of Sally being like, hey, you need to wake up, lady, you need to wake up, sister, okay? Join Antifa already. Jeez, what's happening? You just want to have a good time, don't you? Selfish, selfish. You have to understand the way I am, mein Herr. A tiger is a tiger, not a lamb, mein Herr. You'll never turn the vinegar to jam, mein Herr. So I do what I do. When I'm through, then I'm through. And I'm through. Toodaloo. Bye. 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 
Dab your eye, mine hair, or wonder why mine hair. I've always said that I was a rover. You mustn't knit your brow, you should have known by now. You've every cause to doubt me, mine hair. Well, that is is brushed up against um, the introduction of another character, mm-hmm. uh, Maximilian, the rich baron. Mm-hmm. Uh, he catches the affections of young Sally Bowles. And also, uh, again, this isn't really inferred, and this is one of my problems with the movie, is like, it doesn't seem to play very clearly with how this kind of uh, social conflict or this romance really pertains to the cabaret, until the very end, at least. Yeah. Before she has to kind of make that fatal decision, or faithful, not fatal, <laughs> faithful decision yeah. to either kind of join Brian with his quest or does she stay behind and keep working at the cabaret so yeah so credit to bob fossey in terms of the way the movie's edited because we have these performances at the cabaret kind of cut in Mm -hmm. with uh this intrigue centered around this romance but the problem but the problem i have is like it it seems like for this long stretch in this particular uh, stretch of the movie wherein maximilian insinuates himself in the relationship between uh sally and uh, brian that's the character played by michael york i don't think we've explained that yet (laughs) um it feels like we're not we're not actually getting any cabaret performances and i kind of like lost track of like what what does that have to do with this and there is like one number about like the the joys of of having two women um, yes like trouble (laughs) and money yeah and basically being polyamorous and that's that feels like the only connection because from there um you know, Brian's obviously very annoyed. He's he's like almost being cuckolded right in front of his face by this rich <laughs> Maximilian guy. But then they start sharing like smoldering looks. And yes, um, it's it's very clear Max wants both of them. He doesn't want just one of them. He wants both of them at the yes. same time. And uh, the closest we get to this, yeah. there's a drunken kind of party where they all kind of like start swaying and and they lean in and you think something's gonna happen, but mm-hmm. eventually Brian kind of puts a kibosh on all that. So Brian's pretty sexless yeah. overall. Sexless overall in this whole movie. I, uh, surprisingly, I know, for a Cambridge graduate, unbelievable. <laughs> and for Michael Rourke, just Not that from a raw man. sexual intensity that he brings to every role. We talked about Logan Saran a few weeks, and it's like, oh, still. Just be still my heart, jeez. <laughs> well, later, and this is the problem. All we see are these like smoldering looks, mm-hmm. and in the midst of a fight, uh, Liza Minnelli's character admits that yes, I did sleep with Maximilian the the Baron, but so does Michael York's character. And I thought, mm-hmm. wait, when when did this happen? I thought we were all together, like. <laughs> yeah, they don't really kind of confirm it. They kind of like imply that it's. Either if it if it didn't happen and got really really close to it, but it doesn't actually make it explicit. Yeah. Which again, like you could also, I want to chalk it up to it being 1972, and they, you know, the, I mean, homosexuality is still considered a mental illness at this time. So yeah, <laughs> and you can also infer that he's lying and just trying to get a rise out of her because in their first, well, the first time she tries to make a pass at him, she says like, "Hey, if you're gay, that's fine," or whatever. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, know, that's the like. It, it's 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 her way of like initially needling him, and now she's using it, and now he's using it to needle her. Mm-hmm. Like you can infer that too, and and you could rest assured, like, woof, Michael York is not one of them gays. So, <laughs> got a case of the not gays. Yeah. So that's a that's the thing. It feels like it can't like as as good as those sequences are in which it's trying to cut together the cabaret performances with the intrigue outside. Um, one scene really sticks out in my head. They're doing um, one of those. Um, I, I, I don't know kind of dances where they 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 slap at their knees and butts and stuff in the, in later hose and I don't know the exact name for that like uh, the oompa band or whatever and that's cut with um, Nazis actually taking taking revenge on the club owner who's kicked them out exactly and they they're beating him up in the alley so that's that's very effective use of of editing there but those kind of moments are a little few and far between for me well what do you think of the directorial stylings of one Bob Fassay? Because one of the things I appreciate is the fact that, yes, all the musical numbers are meant to be diegetic. They're meant to be, like, stage 
staged performances on stage so the camera's very low we feel like a member of the audience and so it's yes. not very bombastic it's very kind of uh it, it, it's it's very kind of reminiscent of you know y- you as a viewer watching this show and i think it kind of works like again like i think but like you mentioned earlier the kind of high point of this film is the editing like Every time the mm-hmm. things start to get a little too serious or the story starts to low, we cut back to the cabaret and they're, you know, they're doing some, you know, uh, song and dance about money. Money's great. Money's awesome. Money's the best. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and again, it, it reminds us back of the theme of what the movie is ultimately about, which is, you know, it's like carefree li- lifestyle, carefree living until those Nazis show up. And then it's not so much fun in games anymore, guys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I feel like. He's Bob Fosse is really at home in those sequences, which were on stage. It, it, you're right, mm-hmm. and they're they're planted as if you are an audience member, but they do a great job of like making it more dynamic between winding lenses and say um, using a dolly to like truck along with the audience mm-hmm. and having their like the back of people's heads. Like there's some motion to it. Um, one shot I really liked. It's like we're we're stage right, and they do this like high kick dance up and down the stage, and so that that shot also kicks uh, sticks out in my head. But yeah, it's it's the other moments that I feel like it, it gets a little dry. <laughs> um, I wish that energy was brought to these like domestic arguments. Like there's there's one scene in which um, uh, uh, Brian's friend Fritz is trying to court this uh, this wealthy um, Jewish heiress to yes. to a fortune, mm-hmm. and I thought. Oh, this this is a great scene. Like um, uh, Sally Bowles has insinuated herself um, in this English lesson, which is it's supposed to be one on one, but is now like four people, and uh, she's she's obviously her like brash, promiscuous, uh, energetic self, mm-hmm. and you know, in sharp relief to the stuffy uh, Jewish heiress. So it's like, what what's the word? Like, what's that word? Fornication? What does that mean? <laughs> And I felt like there could have been some more like energy to those scenes because prior to that, also there's like a long discussion in which I think uh, Fritz and and Brian have a talk, and it's all like it's it's a big wide shot frame through a door, and it doesn't change until like he actually closes the door. And yeah, there's there's not a, a whole lot of like energy to those scenes, mm. and I feel like yeah, like yeah, you should contrast like what life is inside the cabaret versus what it's like outside, but. Like I, I started to like lose. Tra- I started to lose like <laughs> energy or interest in the film, and I'm like, when, when are we gonna get back to the cabaret factory? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, it's funny. Like, and also the other big scene that stands out in this film is the one musical number that isn't actually at the cabaret, and that's the song "Tomorrow Belongs to Me." And um, yeah. it's very subtle at first. It's like this kid, this this nice little cute Aryan boy sits up and like starts. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. Oh well. Yeah. He's about as 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 a, a, a pearly white skin and bleach blonde hair that you could possibly get. Yeah. Exactly. And you know he starts singing this song called "Tomorrow Belongs to Me," and it it sounds like an optimistic song, but all of a sudden you start to realize that oh, this is a song about conquest. And as the camera yeah. backs out and more people are joining him, you realize oh, he's in he's in the Hitler Youth. Oh, yeah. th- th- these Nazis, they're no good, aren't they? <laughs> yeah. And uh, did, did that work for you? The fact that, like, I, that scene kind of was effective to me, and it's like a nice little reminder of the stakes. But also, do you think that the treatment of the Nazis was a little too... Because there's the argument of, like, depiction, and again, we've often talked about, like, the advantage of having Nazis as your villains is you don't need to characterize yeah. them or, you know, make them, <laughs> like, look bad. Everyone already knows this. Did you think that the depiction of, like, the kind of Nazi menace was tastefully done, or do you think the, the stakes were high enough? Well, yeah, let's compare it to what we watched last week, The Sound of Music. Mm-hmm. That In that movie, I think we complained that it doesn't feel like there's a Nazi threat for the first half. It doesn't come until the second act. And yeah. It feels like some well, it's of all a different rhetoric. Movie, it d- it's all rhetoric in Sound of Music, whereas here we actually see some actual violence. Uh, at one yes, point they're that's... driving by and they see a dead body in the street and like the police have kind of like yeah. cordoned it off. But I mean, we clearly know why this uh, this uh, this incident had happened, or at least the context of yes. it. Yes. And there's a chance to characterize scene because you're in a car with Sally, Brian, and Max... And they get to like share their different perspectives. Like you know, like Max is like, oh, it's it's okay. Like these Nazis will never actually rise to power. <laughs> However, they do keep dissidents, i.e., um, uh, depraved, <laughs> uh, depraved Bohemians or communists, like in line. Mm-hmm. But he's like, oh no, nothing, nothing bad will happen. Like outside of that, <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> Showing that he's he, 
I mean, not just he's evil because he's he's rich and trying to manipulate uh, Sally Bowles just with his money, uh, but also that you know he's he's also complacent in the face of this Nazi threat. Exactly. So there's good characterization there, and I, you're right that that song really stands out because it's the only one that takes place outside of the cabaret. It's one of the few songs that's not. All the cabaret songs are basically like kind of cheeky, mm-hmm. uh, like tongue like tongue in cheek silly songs exactly. uh, with a comedic bend. There are and there are only two that you could say like have a have a romantic interest. And this is the one that completely kind of changes that mode, not just in its setting but also its tone. And it also does have implications on the story because they're outside of this like beer garden or this. I don't know, like just farm, like having having lunch or something, and they're sharing this smoldering look. It's clear that something is between Brian and Max at this point, mm-hmm. and it's like, well, it, we can't focus on that now. <laughs> We're about to face the threat of a whole uh, an anti-Semitic uh, regime coming up here. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's the weird tension of the movie is the fact that it wants you to get invested into the personal lives of these characters, but also it's like, hey, remember the bigger thing that's happening, guys, in the background. And it like the movie does a really good job of reminding you it's always in the background, like the final shot of the movie i know we're kind of skipping ahead is literally like you know they're having a celebratory thing at the cabaret and then the camera slowly pans over to the audience and you realize oh it's a bunch of you know goose steppers in the audience and they're not looking very amused (laughs) and so it's it's got this great implication that it's like the cabaret probably won't last much longer so the sun on the meadow is summer even the stag in the forest runs free but gather together to greet the storm tomorrow belongs to me the branch of the linden is leafy and green the rhine gives its gold to the sea but somewhere a glory of its unseen tomorrow belongs to me yeah so you're right that works um we haven't even talked about this subplot, but Fritz continues to try to court um, this this uh, Jewish heiress. Oh yeah, turns and out he's Jewish too. It's yeah, yeah. <laughs> There's not much to say about this. So this, <laughs> this yeah, subplot. this is based on a yeah. I learned that this is based on a series of like short stories, which is why it feels so disconnected. But mm-hmm. the other scene that stuck out to me is also at the cabaret. They they intercut um, him trying to court this lady. I mean earlier talking about problematic stuff there's the implication that he did basically force himself on her and sexually assault her uh in which she recruits uh, sally Bowles for help because she's she's obviously a loose woman and yeah. has a lot more sexual experience than she does um so that's that's maybe not like tastefully done but i did like that it intercuts like this scene in which he like is really pining for her and goes up to her her, her doorstep and um, there are these Nazi, these Nazis basically um, graffitiing her house with the the obviously awful anti-Semitic Juden, and they kill her dog, and that's intercut with again another silly song about a man falling in love with an ape. But the big punchline is at the end is like you know, oh if you look past her Jewishness, yeah, <laughs> <you know? laughs> yeah, and showing how like kind of like common common this anti-semitism was at at the weimar republic and why and why it ended up leading to the the rise of the nazi party and people Mm -hmm. i don't know uh hatefully blaming uh the jews for uh an impoverished state uh their impoverished state in the weimar republic so Mm. i mean that's that's really good but overall it's like a little disjointed like yes fritz like admits that he is uh a jew hiding out as a protestant he's pining obviously for this uh this jewish girl and they do get married, and that's it. That's the end of their story. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, hopefully they got out of Germany in time, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I pray and hope that whatever characters they were based on, like, yeah, did did make it out of Europe um, once once the, the Third Reich was instigated. But hmm. I th- that has really nothing to do with the, the, the romance between uh, Brian and Sally Bowles. So, hmm. yeah. That's, that's the thing. Like, I like little moments of it, but the... The parts don't add up to like a, a great hole for me is the issue. Yeah, as you said, there's a good last shot, 
Um, it's it mirrors the opening shot too, because it literally takes place in a mirror, a distorted one. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, all credit to Joel Gray for basically being an energetic presence in the midst of all this uh, romantic intrigue. But I couldn't quite square until the very end. Like it, I needed more connection between this romance, this basically cross-cultural romance in this stuffy Cambridge student and this bohemian, you know. Uh, woman with joie de vivre and yeah. her life at the cabaret and it's not really connected till the very end she decides like no i'm not going with you back to england i'm gonna stay here and chase this pipe dream of becoming a famous actress even though i'm just an amateur lounge singer yeah and um yeah she sings like life is a cabaret like you know life should be fun even though like yes the final <laughs> shot insinuates it's not gonna be very fun for germany for in the next decade yeah exactly I think you're right. I think as a whole, the movie may not 100% work, but I do I do appreciate those touches, and I do appreciate the craft on display. And the performances are all good, too. I mean, we didn't really talk much about Liza Minnelli's performance, but I think she brings that great kind of energy to it. Oh, yeah. You know? <laughs> She's got that I, well, awesome, like, uh, La Boheme kind of feeling to it. She definitely brings that to every scene, so. Yeah, all credit to her. I mean, I... I don't think I've actually seen a performance of hers because she's not exactly a, a film or TV star. Mm-hmm. Probably most people know her as Lucille too. <laughs> in which, no, Greg, I, mean, I think most years. people know her as the daughter of uh, Judy Garland. <laughs> oh, well, okay, there's that too. But I'm just saying in in media. Mm. And so, and obviously, she's had a lot of cosmetic surgery. Like she doesn't look or or act like a human much anymore. <laughs> but. But yeah, there's something very like honest about this portrayal and the energy that she brings to it. So mm. yeah, like you know, it totally earned that Oscar as well as Joel Gray as the MC. <laughs> like, you know. And let's not forget Michael Rourke, just the raw sexual energy. Every single scene he's in, mm. I love it, <laughs> love it. That's, More please. I feel like I feel like his performance could have been better written. Um, yeah. uh, of moments that stick out to me, I'll, I'll never, probably never forget his uh, his delivery of. Christ, <laughs> Sally. <laughs> I mean, what do you what do you expect? He's Basil Exposition, all right. He's he's got. I know, a, yeah. he's, he's probably got. A, you know, he's British, so obviously he comes from more of a theater background. So it's it's all about enunciation. That's true. Uh, at least there's that connection to like, he's he's a linguist. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> his side his side hustle is uh, tutoring English. So. Mm-hmm. Why, what was the reason why he came in the first place? I know he, he starts tutoring to make money, but what, what's what's the main reason he comes in the first place? I don't even remember. Uh, <laughs> you're going to put me on the spot here. Again, a lot of details of yes. this movie. Yes, just yeah. get kind of completely lost. <laughs> yeah. Oh, he's, he's, he's earning his doctorate, according to Wikipedia. Oh, yeah. okay, good, good, good. All right, yeah. cool. It's part of study abroad, okay. All right. And honestly, who wouldn't? Uh, uh, an impoverished Germany following World War One, completely <laughs> ravished and devastated. Like, let's, let's go here. Hmm. <laughs> fair, fair. I'll buy it. Yeah. Mm. All right, this movie completely holds up now. All right. <laughs> yeah. I'm in agreement now. This Perfect, movie's fine. Yeah. If you want to talk about Academy Award injustice, mm. <laughs> this movie won eight Oscars, but it did not take home the big one. Uh, just, uh, again, grave injustice that instead they decided to give it to, I'm just looking it up here, uh, let's see, who did it lose Best Picture to? The Godfather. Some okay, forgotten yeah. oh, art house one of the, wreck. Probably like you know, three exactly. hours long and boring. The pulpy crap, The mm-hmm. Godfather. Yeah, jeez. <laughs> I know. And who directed it? Some nobody, I bet. Yeah, he probably doesn't even like the Marvel Cinematic Universe, even though it's revolutionizing <laughs> the filmmaking world. There you go. <laughs> Get with the times, old man. Yeah. All that. So, John, let's do it. Let's do a comparative analysis now. Okay. Cabaret versus The Godfather. <laughs> Which did you think was better? Oh no, no, no! I think we should do it with the uh, MCU. Let's do Cabaret versus Doctor Strange. Yes. Let's see how they compare. <laughs> yep. They're both about selfish assholes who just want to do what they want. <laughs> uh, also pursuing doctorates, I guess. There so you go. There you go. Well, one's on a, not the one's on an academic. He's, he's an actual surgeon, but whatever. <laughs> yes. I think he, it's it's a movie, so he has like fourteen PhDs that he accomplished before yes. he was like twelve. So. Yep. 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 Yeah, that makes him arrogant. <laughs> he's got to oh, learn. He's a jerk. He's got to learn to. To look outside himself and help others, and hopefully become a hero. Then mm-hmm. that's what that's what Cabaret was missing. <laughs> that's what The Godfather was missing. Michael Corleone, like, where's where's his save the cat moment? Hmm? I know. <laughs> certainly not when he shoots the guy in the restaurant. I'll tell you that much. I know. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's when uh, his wife blows up in the car. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> 
<laughs> he tries. But the, the problem is that that's like minute one hundred. All right, you got to get that way earlier. <laughs> that should be the second act twist. Damn it! Jeez. Yeah. Oh, we have fun. We have fun. Yeah, we do have fun. We do have fun here. Yes. I hope people know what we're talking about, though. <laughs> I I don't know if our audience. I mean, is if they're tuning. I mean, like, if they're tuning into aspiring snobs, they should probably know Save the Cat and the film The Godfather. Obviously, we talk in jest. <laughs> uh, yeah. Hopefully, they know The Godfather. Um, but yeah, skip all that Save the Cat and Sid Field stuff. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. You don't need it. I mean, it's. I mean, like rules and structure help, but come on, it's not gonna. You're not gonna win an Oscar or whatever based on that. You got to feel it. No, and it's all about and stars. You need stars. That's what matters. <laughs> that helps. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, look at Sonic. Parasite. Yeah, Parasite won best original screenplay. Uh, thanks to the star power of Song Kang Ho. Mm-hmm. I mean, there you go. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And Sonic the Hedgehog will win this coming year for his performance yep. for the performance with Jim Carrey. Everybody wins. <laughs> yep. Indeed, it does. John. Let's conclude, as we do every episode, Mm -hmm. with something, a a more full-throated recommendation, something that we can unabashedly uh, just savor and extol and share it with the audience. What should we call this section, though, John? Well, it's it's we're 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 performing right now. We're on a stage, as it were. So I think we should okay. we should give it some kind of like stagey feel. I'm channeling the spirit of Liza Minnelli right now. Mm, yes, give me that, give me that juice, give me that jazz, give me that spotlight. 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 It's time, Robbie. It's time. John, that's your best impression so far. Oh, that's thank you. You should, you should go on one of those great improv <laughs> podcasts, which I know everybody loves. Oh, they're, they're the best. <laughs> yeah. Well, All I mean, uh, characters. the fucking uh, comedy Bang Bang has been lasting 10 years now, so it's they've got to be doing something right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Greg, this week I finally caught up with a show that's been on my Hulu list for the longest time, or Q, whatever they call it, but it's a show that someone recommended to me for a long time, and I was kind of hesitant, I didn't really want to get into it, but now now I want to pass it on to you, my friend, my brother. Um, I finally okay. got around to watching... I, we are not friends, we are not... <laughs> you were my nemesis. Colleagues, but okay. <laughs> yeah. I want to recommend to you a little show called Lettered Kenny. Are you familiar with Lettered Kenny as a concept? Very vaguely, this has also been uh, sent to me via the the algorithms behind Google. Mm-hmm. Like, if I watch old sitcom clips of, say, It's Always Sunny or Arrested Development or whatever, it says, hey, you also might like this Letter Kenny show, mm-hmm. even though it's from, I don't know, some like weird backwards eight people up in uh, somewhere called Canada. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not about that. I, I don't think we should exploit them for our amusement. I mean... <laughs> If anything, we should help them. We should get, we should get them to America and civilize them somehow. But. <laughs> There's that imperialist spirit at work again. Thanks, Greg. Exactly. Um, yep. No bless oblige. But <laughs> um, Letter Kenny, as the uh, title card uh, uh, thankfully reminds you, is a town of five thousand people in uh, Upper Canada, and these are their problems. And so the the show centers around uh, just a group of hooligans uh, led by the kind of the the center, the moral center of the group, Wayne. Okay. Wayne is a farmer by trade, but he also breeds dogs. So uh, <laughs> I wish I could like recreate for you like kind of like the experience of watching the show, but it's too precise. It's too exact. The best way I could describe it is very Cohen-esque. The, okay. the dialogue has a very kind of specific rat-a-tat rhythm to it. And the staging of it is just kind of like hilarious. They do a lot with like visual comedy, just the way like characters occupy like the frame and the way they enter is just always kind of funny. But yeah, it's like the story, it's very, I can see why Google would recommend it to you. It's very much in the vein of Always Sunny in Philadelphia. Uh, it's a lot of kind of deplorable mm-hmm. people kind of like trying to get by. Um, Wayne is kind of the only one who's kind of like morally kind of centered just because he doesn't give a fuck. <laughs> he's just kind of like a cool okay. level head. Uh, he's played by a, um, an actor named like Jared Kiso. And I feel so bad for him because the whole, po- like the whole point of his character is always like stock still, like shoulder length apart, like legs, hands on his hips. And he's always squinting. He's always like squinting like, yeah, how you doing? Not so bad. You, you know, <laughs> like it's, <laughs> and it's like, it's obviously like kind of making fun of like you know the podunkness of uh, northern Canada. Yep. But like, there's still a lot of affection for the characters. Uh, if I had like one complaint, I guess the di- um, the comedy is like a little too broy. It kind of leans too much into that kind of like 
immaturity, like the fact that every single female character on the show is like a bombshell and bisexual in some way or another. <laughs> All right. All right, you have my attention. <laughs> it does it does have like a handful of like gay panic jokes or, you know, like these are obviously like big kind of burly men, so they're not really kind of like familiar with that world. But it's also kind mm-hmm. of like nice because they're trying to adjust. It's like, that don't sound too PC to me, bro. <laughs> like, you know, like just, they realize that, you know, like cultural appropriation is bad, but they just can't like articulate it because they're just too dumb. <laughs> okay, fair enough. But it's a very funny show. And again, like I wish I could... I wish I could recreate it, but it's just too, like, too well-written. A lot of, like, co- the comedy comes from, like, alliteration. Like, the fact that they'll, like, they're kind of dumb hicks, but they'll, like, come up with, like, this perfect prose. Or, like, if you ever watch it, like, a commercial for it on Hulu, like, they'll have this uh, intro where um, he's giving, like, a limerick or something like that. So it's like, there's a lot of, like, whip-snarp dialogue. It's just, like, very well-paced and very well-edited. So I think you would appreciate it a lot. I'm, this is a specific recommendation to you, okay. Greg Mantell. You should check it out. Okay. Uh, all right. Mm-hmm. Well, again, I, I'm like you. I'm immediately skeptical. Because, uh, <laughs> well, not just because, like, you know, I already have a, a It's Always Sunny shaped hole in my heart that's filled. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> I don't know if I have room for, for this uh, Canadian show. Especially because I know there's another Canadian show called Trailer Park Boys, which kind of treads kind of the same territory of of bros like they're they're not like again being like live, they're trailer park trash so they're not exactly yeah. like you know getting it uh as you said i don't think they lean on the that kind of like bro humor or talk about pc culture all that much but mm-hmm. uh, yeah maybe i'll maybe i'll give it a try i think it's on hulu you said right yeah it's on hulu well i think seven okay. seasons it's it's i think it's like online or something like that it's very also like youtube friendly because every episode has like a cold opening and it's usually the funniest part of the episode <laughs> so yes. that's that's what's been recommended to me like the intro like it, this episode intro same with like, yeah i don't know brooklyn 99 i i hate that yes yeah, people call that cold open <laughs> um because they uh, Usually, it's the hottest part TV. of the of the scene, of the episode. So, <laughs> ironically, yeah. yeah, yeah, people read too much TV tropes. But mm. okay, okay, yeah, maybe maybe I'll 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 get a little I'll t- get little shots uh, starting on YouTube and then transfer over to Hulu. Okay, because um, there are ads, and I'm not da- I'm not about that. Oh life, yeah, so. Greg, because there's no ads on YouTube. Yeah, you really won the lottery on yeah. that one. <laughs> you won the jackpot on that one. Indeed, I did. <laughs> John, I'll tell you about a place where there's no ads, mm-hmm. and that's where you can find my Spotlight Criterion Collection. Ooh. Last week, you showed me up by recommending an animated movie from Japan called Grave of the Fireflies. Mm-hmm. I haven't seen this yet. I was actually going to save it for the podcast on a future date, but, you know, again, we're not going to... This podcast doesn't long for this world, so... <laughs> oh. um, yeah. Come on, we got to beat Comedy Bang Bang. we got to make it 10 years, baby! <laughs> sure. Yeah. Obviously, the people are clamoring for more. But so I'm going to recommend another movie from Japan that I was kind of thinking of saving for this episode. But instead, I'm going to recommend it to you now, so you can watch it on your own time. Okay. And uh, I think you will appreciate it a lot because, like Cabaret, it brings in a lot. But I think it's a, just a little bit more cohesive. And it is Mishima: A Life in Four Chapters. Oh, I've been looking forward to this one. I wanted. I, I'm a little disappointed because, yeah, I was looking forward to watching it on uh, for the podcast. But no, now you spoil it. You ruined it. You bastard. Yeah. <laughs> well, you can watch along with everybody else because this is a, even though it's a, a movie about a Japanese guy, mostly in Japanese, uh, it's directed by Paul Schrader, mm. the writer behind Taxi Drive from Raging Bull. And Again, First Reformed, Cl- your, your favorite first movie reformed, of my all favorite time. movie of all time. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> His career is like hit or miss then, but this and First Reformed are like huge hits. So basically he does a, th- this movie combines basically three things. It's a black-and-white uh, summation of uh, the life of Yukio Mishima. Do you know who Yukio Mishima is? Um, he was some guy who, I think, tried to lead an armed rebellion against the uh, Japanese government at some point in his life? Yes. yes. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave it at that. He was a very famous uh, author, actor, and he also modeled sometimes. So mm. big Japanese celebrity in the 50s and 60s. But as you learn, he's also extremely committed to tradition mm. and loved the power of the emperor and desperately wanted Japan after all the tumult of, of World War II and, and all the flux that that country was thrown into. He's like, I want to restore the power to the emperor instead of having a, a parliament or democracy or anything like that. Mm. So basically it cuts between that uh, old, uh, or excuse me, um, black and not old because it, it was shot in the eighties. <laughs> um, black and white footage of uh, his life, 
um, cut between in color, like more realistically shot footage of this moment in which he tries to basically restore power to the emperor and tries to stage a coup with a small coterie of about like four or five other followers. Interesting. Yes. And in between then, we actually get uh, really well-staged adaptations of three of his novels that kind of inform his life and also like how he basically wanted to do the, wanted to stage this coup. Mm. So th- those are incredibly well done. Again, all of it is like really cohesive even though you're cutting between three different things and and as I said like three like really brief adaptations of three of his novels. It all works really well. But this and is supposed think... to be four chapters. Why aren't the chapters in order? Why aren't the pages in order? Where are the chapter headings? I'm confused. <laughs> but I'm, John, trust me. All right, you will stay you you will stay focused on it. Okay. I, all right, believe me. All right. A, commending all the great performances, great narration uh, written and narr- and performed or written by Schrader and performed by the great Roy Scheider mm-hmm. of Jaws fame. Ooh. He's he's excellent. Yep. So that's the English connection. All the rest of it is done in Japanese. But I think really the clue. Roy Schneider really... also played Bob Fosse in all that jazz. Yes, <gasps> you're right. That's the connection. Circle. Yeah, baby. Yes. Thank you, John, for making that connection. So that's really what brings it together. But I know what you're really going to love and what I think is really the star of the show is, of course, the score by Philip Glass. Mm, yeah. I, you don't have to see. Yeah. You don't have to see like a frame of the movie, but at least owe it to yourself to listen to the entire soundtrack because it's all wonderfully brilliantly done by the obviously brilliant Philip Glass. So, again, it's all great. I can't recommend it enough. I was going to save it for this podcast, but I don't know. Like, if we don't, I feel like we should do more mainstream hits to get more SEO <laughs> instead of these cult classics. But <laughs> so I'm reserving for the spotlight. Please do go to the Criterion Channel. This is where you can find it, and go see Mishima: Life in Four Chapters. Greg, I don't think you're. You, I think you're missing a, a crucial element, which Paul Schrader is always trending on Twitter. He's just like always blowing it up. Everyone's <laughs> like, "What's Paul Schrader up to? What are his opinions yes. on things? I need to know." <laughs> Well, funny you mention that. I, I know on one corner of film Twitter, he is on social media. Oh, it's not Twitter though; it's Facebook, oh, where no. octogenarians <laughs> like do belong, oh, like him no. do belong. <laughs> yeah. Well, thankfully, yeah, we haven't. Um, I think there's only one moment in which he came to the defense of like a a, a sexual abuser, somebody like wrapped up in the Me Too movement. I can't remember who. Um, yeah, hopefully he's he's been forgiven of his uh, his social media sins uh, since then. <laughs> okay. Um, but he does have uh, some very crumulent opinions. Uh, most recently, um, he derided uh, 1917 for its its one shot aspect. I mean, I I think I kind of agreed with him in that it, it kind of diminishes. Uh, the movie's overall impact and it's always hanging over like not not the how they did it we obviously know that any movie can really recreate like one shot one giant tracking shot but uh, what's really hanging over the movie is why and so he, he had a long fiery post about like what's the why behind the the one shot in 1917 so he brings fire to facebook if you do want to like follow him there. okay <laughs> sure yeah because i love facebook facebook's my favorite yes. <laughs> I'm like, what Michael Bloomberg ads am I going to be fed today? Yippee, Facebook! (laughs) It's not just Michael Bloomberg's ads, John. It's Tom Steyer ads, too. (laughs) And Pete. Don't forget Mayor Pete. Everyone's favorite. He doesn't have have the Actually, can I share with you something I found funny? Yes. Uh, We went to the Third Street Promenade in Santa Monica, Mm -hmm. a great tourist destination. If you are visiting Southern California, go ahead and visit there. And I thought, oh, you misguided fool. (laughs) You're trying to drum up support for Mayor Pete in an area in which people either don't live in either California or the United States as a whole. (laughs) Yeah. So I look forward to Bernie winning the California primary. Mm. Yes, which comes early this year. Usually we do it in uh, June, but now we're I doing know, it in thankfully. March this year. Ooh, March is yeah, they decided, hey, they decided, hey, maybe the most populous state in the Union should have a say <laughs> earlier. What a novel concept. Who will be our next president. Exactly. We should all just do it in the day. In fact, it should probably be first. Get get Iowa out of here. Yeah. Garbage. Terrible. <laughs> you had, Iowa, you had... You had one thing to keep you in the national conversation, but no, you're going to be absorbed by Nebraska, (laughs) basically. (sighs) Whatever notoriety you had is now going to be gone. There you go. Just couldn't keep it together. Yep. Yep. Well, we just spent uh, a good amount of time deriding Facebook and Twitter, but hey, wouldn't you know it? You can actually find <laughs> us there if you're interested. So it's maybe not it's all not bad. all bad. <laughs> yeah. 
it's not all bad. It's like the, you know how back in the you know <laughs> back in the in, in mid nineteenth century, people went uh, through every stream and and mine panning for gold. Mm-hmm. We're the little uh, gold nuggets and powders that uh, <laughs> crop up in in otherwise uh, long fields of nothing. So. Mm-hmm. Go ahead, give us a follow on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Yeah, Instagram, the Michael Bloomberg to Facebook's Donald Trump. (laughs) Everything's better there, right? (laughs) It's gotta be. Well, they're they're revealing more and more about Michael Bloomberg, Mm. and it turns out, no, there's not a whole lot differentiating him from Trump. Who would have thought a former Republican would have bad, problematic opinions? (laughs) Who would have thought? I know. History of terrible sexist comments, uh, racism. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Who would have thought? Listen, if there's one thing you take away from this, other than an opinion of of Cabaret or a, a strong endorsement of both Letterkenny and Mishima, it's do not vote for Michael Bloomberg. <laughs> That's we the one thing you. We really are begging you. We are begging you. Yes. Episode. Yeah. Yes. It's the one key takeaway. Mixed opinions on Cabaret. Mm. Big thumbs down on Michael Bloomberg. <laughs> yeah. Oh, huge. The biggest. <laughs> If you want to share other opinions with us, though, you could always reach out to us with email because we're at AspiringSnaps at gmail.com. Check it out. Send us comments, questions, and recommendations. We'd love to read them. Absolutely. And if you dislike Michael Bloomberg as much as we do, Mm -hmm. you can go ahead and let your opinion know via the review feature on every podcast concern. Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, they all have rating systems. We would appreciate five stars. That way more people will find the show and we'll be building an aspiring snobs community. And hey, we'll be going for longer. We'll be, you know, kind of joining the conversation around films like Cabaret or Mishima or shows like Letterkenny. Maybe uh, you're, you're a big fan too and you want to connect with John somehow on that. So yeah, that, I know you can do it in the, le- in the review section. Do it there first. I'm and always then, looking for And friends, then email him. So please, reach out to me. Yes, <laughs> yes. Again, email him personally. His email is M-A- No! <laughs> Well, Greg, there's only one thing left to do. We've given them just an hour of just delicious content, just the most bombastic, yeah. songy, dancey, sing-song, tap dance you could imagine. So now the only thing left mm-hmm. to do is tell them what we're watching next week. Well, slight correction, I see we're at 45, 49 minutes in. <laughs> but, you know, whatever. <laughs> when you add the clips in and the, and the outro music, it'll be an hour. It'll be great. <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. But mercifully, Oscars Musical Month will be coming to an end with, I know, a movie that everybody's looking forward to. Uh, I, I know a lot of people say, like, oh, how could the Academy get it wrong again? They, they always think, like, somehow this arbitrary collection of, like, 6,000 industry professionals are always going to get, I don't know, people's favorite movie or whatever. Mm-hmm. Probably, probably one of the best examples of that was in 2002 when they decided to honor with the best picture the movie we're watching next week, Chicago. Hell yeah! This is one. I, I see. I like obviously watching best picture winners. I like the overrated best picture winners, like American Beauty. Mm. Oh, that just stung in my brain forever. <laughs> I don't think Chicago will be that bad. I'm praying it's not that bad. No, but... we, we can only hope. It is Rob Marshall, yeah. so you never know. <laughs> <laughs> John, what are you saying about Mary Poppins Returns? All right. Yeah, I was more talking about uh, oh God, what was the other bad one he did? Um, I'm drawing a Well, there was nine. There was nine. There was Into the Woods, which actually wasn't that bad, but it was bad. Um, yeah. <laughs> actually, this is going to be perfect because it's another opportunity to celebrate Renee Zellweger. Yes. The closest thing we have to Liza Minnelli. <laughs> I mean, Liza Minnelli's still alive. I don't know why I said that. <laughs> Yeah, and they've had about the same amount of cosmetic surgery at this point. Ooh, ouch. Uh, ooh. Burn. All right, John, let's move confidently to the end of the episode. <laughs> yes. All right, again, write your angry missives to John. <laughs> uh, his email is M-A-N. Stop it. <laughs> yes, so thank you, everybody, for listening. And until next time, keep aspiring, you old coops. <laughs> what good is sitting alone in your room? Come hear the music play. Life is a cabaret, old chum. Come to the cabaret. Put down the knitting, the book, and the broom. It's time for a holiday. Life is a cabaret, old chum. Come to the cabaret.